prayer uh, the college for Mass today. Convert us, O God our Savior, and instruct our minds by heavenly teaching that we may benefit from the works of Lent. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray, pray for us. St. Joseph, pray, pray for us. Out of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. All right. So, tonight, uh, what I decided to do in preparing this class, um, actually, I had very little preparation. And I'll tell you why, Diane. Uh, I took the lecture. You're going to get a mixture of biblical, uh, biblical ecclesiology, biblical theology of the church, and in particular, the sacraments, uh, the sacrament of holy orders. Okay? So we're going to cover the sacrament of holy orders tonight in the church. Um, we will cover some of, we'll overlap with some of what we did last week regarding the Episcopacy, but we're also going to concentrate even more so on the sacrament of the, of the, the second order, priesthood, and the diaconate. Okay? Uh, and again, it's from a biblical uh, theology perspective. We're going to dive into not only the catechism, but also uh, the biblical scriptures. Uh, that pertain to these three orders, okay? Uh, looking at the foundation of them, what they mean, and so on and so forth, in more detail um, than we did last week. So a lot of this will probably be new for, some of, some of this will be brand new for all, for all of you, uh, except Diane, who took the course in sacramental theology with me last spring. All right, so let's look at, let's review this. So we know that there are three degrees of holy orders. Um, the episcopacy, the presbyterate, and the diaconate. And all three ranks uh, of office in the church, these three ranks, belong to the same sacrament of holy orders. So let's look at first, uh, we'll skip over um, 1536, uh, since it's pretty self-evident, uh, and just look at Lumen Gentium 28. Um, so, Douglas, would you read for us, please? Christ, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, has, through his apostles, made their successors, the bishops, partakers of his consecration and his mission. They have legitimately handed on to different individuals in the church various degrees of participation in this ministry. Thus, the divinely established ecclesiastical ministry is exercised on different levels by those who from antiquity have been called bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay, so you see the key words there, divinely established ecclesiastical ministry. So God himself has established these three orders. And we will see uh, when we get into the biblical theology of why and how that is so. Ordination, and going on now into the um, catechism, ordination is an incorporation into a governing body. Let's look at 1537, uh, James, please. The first order is an 
governing body. But a non-tenure convenience incorporates order. In the church, there are established bodies which traditionally, not without a basis in sacred scripture, has since ancient times called taxis or ordinances. And so the liturgy speaks order of episcoporum, the order of presbyterium, the order of diaconorum. Other groups also receive this name of order. Catechumens, virgins, spouses, whatever. Your, your Latin is excellent. Okay. Have you studied Latin? Hmm? Have you studied Latin? I've been classified in college, so I attended extraordinary one. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, let's continue. Uh, 1538. Uh, how about uh, Raphael? Integration into one of these bodies in the church was accomplished by a right call or religio, a religious and liturgical act which was in consecration, a blessing or a sacrament. Today, the word ordination is reserved for the sacramental act which integrates a man into the order of bishops, presbyters, or deacons and goes beyond a simple election, designation, delegation, or institution by the community, for it confers a gift of the Holy Spirit that per permits the exercise of a sacred power, sacra potestas, which can come only from Christ himself through his church. Ordination is also called consecration for it is a setting apart and investiture by Christ himself for his church. The laying on, hand, on, on of hands by the bishop with the consecratory prayer constitutes the visible sign of this ordination. Okay, so again, we're being told here that this is not simply an election or a designation or a delegation by the community, as I said last week. It's Christ himself who chooses. It's Christ himself who ordains. We'll go back to this uh, in a bit. So now we're gonna look at the priesthood in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. A biblical ecclesiology or a biblical theology of the priesthood. Um, and we're just gonna be dealing with the basics here because you, know, you could teach a whole course on, on just this, right? So in Catechism Entry 1539, it tells us that um, in the Old Testament, you know, the chosen people were called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that from them, out of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi, uh, they were set apart for liturgical service, right? And there was a special rite that consecrated the beginnings of that Old Testament priesthood. The priests of the Old Testament, it says, are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Instituted to proclaim the word of God and to restore communion with God by sacrifices and prayer, this priesthood, this, this now we're talking about the ancient priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, remains powerless to bring about salvation needing to be repeated, it, it, the sacrifices have to be repeated over and over again. 
but they are unable to achieve a definitive sanctification, which only the sacrifice of Christ would accomplish. So the priests of the Old Testament had essentially two roles, to proclaim the word of God, to act as teachers, all right, and secondly, to restore as a mediator, to restore communion with God by sacrifices and prayers. But those prayers and sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again to appease the divine justice. But in and of themselves, they couldn't accomplish a definitive sanctification or bring about salvation. All, we, have to, we have to wait for the priesthood of Christ for that. Okay. So there are three degrees in the Old Testament priesthood. This is very interesting. And we get them from, uh, well, we'll get back to that. All three are mentioned uh, here in the Old Testament. They, they're terms that are actually rooted in the Old Testament uh, triad of priestly ministry uh, that functioned in ancient Israel uh, at the tabernacle and in the temple. So in the ancient Israelite temple, um, in the Levitical priesthood, and I'll come to more about that later, there were three categories or three degrees of ordained ministry. The first one was that of Aaron, the high priest, and his descendants, his firstborn sons, and all of these functioned as high priest. The second were the other sons of Aaron, not his firstborn, but his other sons of Aaron. They functioned as ministerial priests. And the third were the Levites as a whole. So, do you remember what tribe Moses called to his side to serve uh, Nexus 32? It doesn't matter, because we're actually going to go over that passage later on. It's in Exodus 32, the Levites. The Levites were consecrated and set apart for priestly service, but not all of them had the same functions in the tabernacle. Some of them served as priestly assistants, uh, who took care of the various vessels, the sacred vessels, and so on. So there were various degrees of participation in the same priestly ministry, but different functions and roles or orders. You see how that's already? We're getting a, a glimpse already, huh? In this one priesthood of the Old Covenant. So my point here is to show that there was this multi-tiered priesthood that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And the liturgy of the church uh, sees in those three a foreshadowing, a prefigurement of the three sacred orders that will develop in the church later on in the New Covenant. So let's look at these. There's three entries next from the Catechism that, that are taken, uh, part of it is taken, from the rite of ordination. First the bishops, then priests, then deacons. So, um, John, would you read the first, please? The liturgy of the church, however, sees in the priesthood of Aaron and the service of the Levites as in the institution of the 70 elders, a prefiguring of the ordained ministry of the new covenant. Thus, in the Latin rite, the church prays in the consecratory preface of the ordination of bishops, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by your gracious word, you have established the plan of your church. 
From the beginning, you chose the descendants of Abraham to be your holy nation. You established rulers and priests and did not leave your sanctuary without ministers to serve you. Okay, so the office of Aaron the high priest was a foreshadowing of the role of the bishop in the new covenant. Now we go to the ordination of priests. The church says, um, Dan Condon, would you read, please? At the ordination of priests, the church says, Holy, Holy Father, when you had appointed high priests to the rule of your people, you chose other men next to them in rank and dignity to be with them and to help them in their task. You extended the spirit of Moses to 70 wise men. You shared among them the sons of Aaron, the fullness of their father's power. Okay, so the sons of Aaron, the ministerial priests, was a foreshadowing of priests in the new covenant. Then we go to the third one uh, for uh, deacons, Will. In the consecratory prayer for ordination of deacons, the church confesses, Almighty God, you make the church, Christ's body, grow to its full stature as a new and greater temple. You enrich it with every kind of grace and perfect it with the diversity of members to serve the whole body in a wonderful pattern of unity. You established a threefold ministry of worship and service to the Lord in your name. As ministers of your tabernacle, you chose the sons of Levi and gave them your blessing as their everlasting inheritance. Okay, so the Levites then, the priestly assistants, correspond, prefigure, foreshadow the diaconate, deacons in the new covenant priesthood. I made up a little diagram. It's in my notes. Do I have it on your handout? No. Okay, good. Okay. Now we're going to look at the right, the right of priesthood ordination in the Old Covenant. Very, very interesting. Um, because in order to understand the priesthood in the Old Covenant, we need to look at this ordination right. Okay? And, and Exodus 29 is, is a description of this right of ordination. So... It's long, so I'll read it. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Now this is the Lord speaking. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them of, cho of choice wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the vestments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird them <coughs> with the decorated band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy diadem on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall gird them with sashes and tie headdresses on them and the priesthood shall be theirs by a perpetual ordinance. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands upon the head of the bull, and you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the door of the tent of meeting. 
and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it upon the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the door of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made to ordain and consecrate them. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. Aren't you glad we don't do this at the ordination of uh, bishops and priests today? <laughs> Can you imagine having to kill a bull and put its uh, blood all over the vault and everything? All right. But notice the various elements of the rite. There's a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice of the bull and an unbloody one of the wheat bread. There's washing with water. There's vesting. Their vestments are an outward sign of their inward uh, consecration. You can recognize the priests by how they dress. Then there's the anointing with oil. Then there's the laying on of hands uh, on the sacrifice. Right? Um, the bull represents the priest himself. First the bull is set apart, then it's killed, and then its blood is poured out upon the altar. Okay? So what does that mean? It means that the priest will pour out his life blood for the, for the service of the altar. Then there's the anointing of priestly vestments, and then there's a communion meal, eating the flesh and bread of atonement sacrifice. Okay? The climax of the priesthood ordination is that they eat a meal of flesh and bread. Can you think of any other context where that happens? The Eucharist. So priesthood, then, according to this text, is not just about teaching uh, and being a mediator between God and the human race. It's also about self-sacrifice for the sake of the altar, for the sake of the people. Okay? Now there were, um, so there's, there's great foreshadowings in here, you know, I mean, you know, if you've ever attended the ordination of a bishop, uh, there's similar, there similar things that occur, you know, uh, the anointing with oil on his head, the, they put the book over his head, anyway, that's too involved to get into now. Now, there were two kinds of priesthood in the Old Testament. The first was the priesthood of Melchizedek. Sometimes it's called the Adamic priesthood. Um, because up until Exodus 32, every man, every Israelite man, could offer sacrifice for his family. He could function as a priest for his family. You know, we saw Noah doing that, Jacob, Isaac, they built altars. They were functioning as priests, right? But only one of them is explicitly called a priest, and that's Melchizedek. <coughs> So you can call the Melchizedek or the Adamic priesthood the original priesthood, okay? uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's a natural priesthood that included all Israelite men. And that existed until about 1500 BC, when every man could be a priest over his family. The change came at the time of the Exodus. Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai, and the people rebelled, and they built this altar to 
uh, the golden calf. And when Moses returned, he said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Well, only one of the 12 tribes came to him, the Levites. So the priesthood, the natural priesthood of Melchizedek, was taken away from the other 12 tribes and given only to only one, the Levites. So here you have the origin now of the Levitical priesthood. And it's that institution of the little, that's the institution of the Levitical priesthood. And that priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, will remain in place until the time of Jesus. But there is no Jewish priesthood today. It came to an end in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Now, there's another, it's kind of an interesting side issue, but I do want to include it. I have there, the next text is from 2 Samuel 6, where David is bringing the ark of God uh, up from the house of Obededum uh, to the city of David, and he's dancing in front of the ark, and he's making merry in front of the ark, and he's wearing a linen ephod. Notice the, the ephod is a sign of the priesthood. Um, and um, so David and all the house brought up the ark with shouting and so on. So David brings the ark back to Jerusalem and he's offering sacrifice. He's wearing that linen ephod, which is the garment worn by the Levitical priests. So he's dressed like a priest and he's offering sacrifice like a priest. But there's a problem here, right? He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of the Judahites, okay? So... How could he act like a priest if he's not a Levite? Psalm 110 answers the question for us. It's a psalm of David. It appears to be set in the context of uh, his son Solomon's anointing as king. Uh, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. <coughs> the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what's going on there? There are two stages in the Old Covenant priesthood. The first stage, as I said, is the first stage is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Melchizedek offered sacrifice of bread and wine. So David and Solomon are trying to restore the priesthood of Melchizedek here. They were participating in that. But by 587 BC, the temple was in ruins and the kingdom of Solomon was in so their plan to restore the priesthood fell apart. But David still was acting like a priest here. Now we go to the priesthood of the New Covenant, and we're going to be going back and forth here with Old Testament texts to illustrate. At the time of our Lord, the people were not just waiting for a Messiah. They were also waiting for a new priest. When you get a new priest, he's going to inaugurate new sacrifices and a new priesthood. And at the heart of the Protestant Reformation was a rejection of the ministerial priesthood as it existed in the church up until that time. Okay. So what evidence is there in the New Testament that Jesus himself saw himself as a priest and instituted a new priesthood? There are three key passages. The first is Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Are you all familiar with this text? I don't want to read the whole thing if I don't have to. 
he's, he's going up and um, they're plucking, he and the apostles are plucking these grains of, heads of grain and they're eating them. And the Pharisees uh, saw that that was an act of harvesting um, which was, wasn't lawful on the Sabbath because they were doing this on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't argue with them about that. But he points out what David did when he was hungry in 1 Samuel 21. So David is, you know, he's asking the priest, what, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, whatever's here. And the priest says, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread. If only the young men had kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, of a truth, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go off on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is common journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from the Lord and uh, replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. The bread of the presence was a sacrificial offering of unleavened bread that was kept um, in the holy place in the tabernacle. It was a symbol of God's presence. Okay? David asked for some of that bread because that's all they had. So the story is about David and his followers acting like priests with regard to the bread of presence. And that's the background for how Jesus answers the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 3 to 5. Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests of the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? All right, so David in the temple ate the bread of the presence that only priests could eat. Um, they broke the Sabbath because they were working on the Sabbath, but they're guiltless, Jesus said, because they were priests. And we can work on the Sabbath because priests can work on the Sabbath. So both David and his followers could act like a priest. Then, Jesus is saying, then I and my followers can act like a priest too. David didn't just act like a priest. He was a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is saying, I am the new temple. I am the new priest. Right? And my followers are the new priests. And they can, and they and I can work on the Sabbath and are guiltless because we are priests. Right? So the priests of Melchizedek offered bread sacrifice on the Sabbath. Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, like David. And he's going to offer the new bread of the presence, the Eucharist. So that's text number one. It was functioning, but the, the, there was also this understanding in, in their tradition that the Messiah would be a priest. Now, Jesus sets up a new priesthood in Exodus 24. And this is very interesting, and it's very important. The very number of apostles that our Lord sets up around himself reveals that he's instituting the priesthood. How did he set up the apostles? Well, at the top you had Peter, right? Then you had the three, and Peter's included in that, Peter, James, and John. Then you had 
the next circle of disciples, the 12. Then you have the 70 disciples. Remember the, the 70 disciples in Luke 10? Jesus commissioned them for ministry. Where did our Lord get these numbers? Is it just arbitrary? Is it a coincidence? No. He gets them from Exodus 24, which describes the liturgy on Mount Sinai. Vincent, do us the honors. And he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship afar off. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So there were 12 young men of Israel sent by Moses. So notice that Moses sets up the numbers you have. At the top is Aaron, then the three, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, then the 12 young men from the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the 70 elders. So what is Jesus doing? Now remember, who is Jesus? The Messiah. Yes, he's more than the Messiah. He is the second person of the most blessed Trinity incarnate. He knew exactly what he's doing. You think he knew the Old Testament? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's, he's inspired it, for heaven's sakes. So you see what he's doing here. He's establishing around himself a hierarchy of disciples that is modeled directly on the old covenant priesthood. If we look at Exodus 23, we can see that. Okay? He's setting up a new priesthood. Now, when you try to show up that, uh, show that our Lord is setting up a new priesthood in the Bible, you will not find the word priest anywhere, uh, anywhere in the New Testament. But you find the word presbyter, presbyterois, which means elder. Okay? We'll get back to that later on. So that's the second one, Exodus 24. The third is John 13, the foot washing. Holy orders. I hope that what I'm going to share with you next will help you under, better appreciate the liturgy of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday. It'll give you a deeper insight into the meaning of it. Okay? So on Thursday, uh, Holy Thursday, we have the Mass of the Lord's Supper and the washing of the feet, right? What is the meaning of that rite? Well, on one level, it's a, a rite that clearly symbolizes service. You'll hear that Many homilies that, that priests give on Holy Thursday talk about service, right? But there's more going on here. So let's look at the passage. And I think it bears reading because, you know, we're going to hear it Holy Thursday, but let's, let's so it's fresh in our minds. Uh, let's, let's, let's read John 13. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, 
when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but those, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed does not need to wash, but his feet. He is clean all over, and you are clean, but not all over you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, You are not all clean. When he had washed their feet, and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, as I have done for you. to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay, thank you. So on one level, there's the sign of Christian service and Christ's love. We all know that. We've heard it before. But I'd like to share with you something, that there's something more here. Uh, we've seen this in the context of the Last Supper, uh, remember in the Synoptic Gospels at the Last Supper, uh, recall what were the last words Jesus uh, told his disciples? Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? To pour out blood in sacrifice, basically. Right? Who pours out blood in sacrifice? Only a priest. So John, when he's writing this, he's assuming that you uh, you already know all about the Last Supper, but he's telling of us about the fuller actions that Jesus performed uh, at, the, at the Last Supper, right? And we may understand this text as a kind of ordination rite. We we'll often will say that uh, Jesus ordained the twelve at the Last Supper, but this gives us the context. This gives us the details. John gives us the details. In Leviticus 16, 23 to 24, well, first, what did Jesus do before he washed their feet? He removed his outer garments, right? Mm -hmm. And in Leviticus, Leviticus 16, the high priest, Aaron, also removes his garment, and he does it on the Day of Atonement. Okay? Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, 
and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The language of John is echoing the language of Leviticus 16. The stripping of the high priest and Jesus disrobing before he washes their feet and before he offers sacrifice on Good Friday on Calvary. Why does Jesus wash their feet? Look at Exodus 30. Um, let's see. Diane, please. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a layer of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his descendants throughout their generations. Okay, so in the Old Testament tabernacle, there was the altar of sacrifice, and between the holy place, the tabernacle, there was a two-tiered laver um, with water in it and a basin. The priests had to wash their hands and their feet um, before they offered sacrifice. So notice that Jesus insisted that he wash their feet, even when Peter objected, right? So Jesus is using the same, he's following the same tradition used by the Old Testament priests before they offered sacrifice. And by doing that, he's showing himself, first off, that he's the priest. He's a priest before he offers sacrifice on Calvary, right? He's doing this. But that he's also making them priests because it's going to be their mission to do the same, to offer sacrifice. Now, another interesting point here is that foot washing occurs in another context as well. It's a nuptial imagery. It's nuptial imagery. Nuptial union. So foot washing is somehow tied to marital relations with one's spouse. If you were to look at 2 Samuel 11, 8 to 11, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The first verse says, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Now remember what happened here, the context. David had uh, was strolling one day uh, while his men were out on campaign and he was on the rooftop of his palace and he spotted this beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. The problem, he was very attracted to her, but the problem was she was already married to Uriah the Hittite, who was off campaigning. And he takes her to himself and they have relations and she gets pregnant and then David is faced with this dilemma uh, how do I avoid a scandal and God knows what other consequences so he calls Uriah back from the campaign and he tells him to go home and wash your feet well he didn't mean that literally washing your feet is a euphemism for having sexual relations with your wife and how do we know that well if you go further down in the text to verse 11 uh, Uriah, he goes home, but he sleeps outside. 
He doesn't go into his house. And then, so then, of course, David tries to get, tries to get invites him for dinner, gets him drunk on wine, tells him to go back again. You know, well, David, finally Uriah says to him, um, the ark and, the, and, uh, and Israel uh, dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, the commander in charge, is in the open field. And I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So there's a euphemism there. The washing of the feet is a preparation for becoming a father. So Jesus washes the feet of the disciples because they are to become the priests and spiritual fathers of the church. Remember I said last week there's a nuptial relationship between the priests, the bishops and priests, and the church, the bride of Christ. There's a spousal character to it. We see that reflected here. Well, is this also the reason why the priests wash their hands before uh, well, it, it's more of a, it's more of a symbol of purification from sin to show the purity that he should have uh, of heart and soul, and in in offering the august sacrifice of Calvary before handling the body of Christ. Then Jesus says to Peter. Peter says to Jesus, rather. No, you can't wash me. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you will have no part in me. And the Greek word part is meros, meaning inheritance. So having no part in me means that either I wash your feet or you will not be one of my priests. That's basically what he's saying. So what Jesus is doing is taking the rite of foot washing, which was a priestly rite and a nuptial rite, and he's merging it into a symbol or sign of his own self-offering. That's what a priest and spiritual father, uh, and what a husband, right? A husband is supposed to do. I mean, giving himself, laying down his life at the foot of the altar, the service of the altar, for the sake of the people, as a priest laying down the husband, lays down his life uh, to serve his beloved bride, his wife, his spouse, right? Uh, sacrificing for her, um, even their physical lives if necessary, okay? So Jesus wants them to imitate his own self-sacrifice. And again, if Jesus didn't intend the apostles to be priests, uh, he wouldn't have washed their feet. This is basic background. The foot washing, Remember this is a priestly rite, which is why the rubrics of the Mass on Holy Thursday indicate, if you read the rubrics, it indicates that only men are supposed to have their feet washed. I know that's delicate in today's world, right? In the church on that ceremony, they have men or women up there, and the regular people from the lady. Yeah, I know. Is there any significance to the story in that? No, I mean, you know, uh, the second one, I brought the scouts here for uh, the Rattletari Day Award. The, the priests at the time said, uh, they took them downstairs to the gym and had them shoot baskets. And they said, anybody who gets a basket in, you have to become a priest. It's kind of similar to the foot. They, they were joking around. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's kind of. <laughs> but, but 
you know, when I was when I became a pastor, I became a pastor of a parish uh, where the previous pastor, who had been there for 34 years, uh, only allowed men to have their feet washed. So when I went in, I didn't have to change anything. <laughs> Because if I had, it would have been, you know, he would have gotten grief. He would have gotten a lot of nice letters, you know, unsigned letters. Unsigned letters that go to the shredder. But this is the background, you see? There's a reason for everything the church does, you know? Deep theological and scriptural reasons that most people don't know about or understand. Because they're not told, right? All right. Christ is the eternal high priest. We've heard that expression before. Who ordained the apostles at the Last Supper. But the Catechism wants us to make sure that we understand that there is also, and we, talk, we talked about this last week, I'm just going to go into it a little deeper this weekend, the fact that there are two kinds of priesthood, the, the priesthood of the uh, ordained and the universal priesthood of the faithful. Um, So let's just read this over, and then I'll go into that a little more detail. Um, Colleen, please. Let's hear that, that Queen's accent. Uh, is that, are we doing 1544? Okay. Everything that the priesthood of the Old Covenant prefigured finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and men. The Christian tradition considers Melchizedek, priest of God most high, as a prefiguration of the priesthood of Christ, the unique high priest after the order of Melchizedek, holy, blameless, unstained by a single offering, he has perfected all time those who are sanctified, that is, by the unique sacrifice of the cross. Okay, so we have there the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of the ordained priesthood. And then um, the same is true of the one priesthood of Christ. It is made present through the ministerial priesthood without diminishing the uniqueness of Christ's priesthood. Okay? Now, there are two, there's two levels of participation is really what we're talking about. All right? Catechism entry 1546 says, Christ, high priest and mediator, has made of the church a kingdom priest for God, his God and Father. The whole community of believers is as such priestly. The faithful, the lay faithful, exercise their baptismal priesthood through their participation, each according to his or her own vocation, in Christ's mission as priest, prophet, and king. Through the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, the faithful are consecrated to be a holy priesthood. What does that mean? Notice the emphasis on consecration. To be set apart. That's what consecration means. To be set apart. To be set apart as holy. The ministerial priesthood is not the only priesthood that's been set apart and consecrated. Right? You all, each one of you here, have been set apart and consecrated through baptism and again at confirmation. Okay? Um, and confirmation enables you to offer yourself in sacrifice to God. Uh, and, and, and offering a sacrifice is a priestly activity. Right? So by definition, to the extent that the laity offer their sacrifices, sufferings, 
uh, their daily work, their prayers, uh, their whole lives, really, you have a priestly mission and identity. Okay? So the church does teach this universal priesthood, uh, sometimes called the priesthood of all believers. But again, she also has this other ministerial priesthood, which, and I'm just going to highlight it because I talked about it last week, in entry 1547, it explains how they are essentially different, but ordered one to another. Remember I said that last week. The ministerial priesthood is at the service of the common priesthood. Okay? It is a means by which our Lord builds up and leads his church. So that's the, that's, that, that, that's the essential difference between these two types. The ministerial priesthood is ordered to the service of the lady. Um, and it's interesting that the Council of Trent explains this, I think, a little better. Um, did I put that on your handout? No, okay. The Council of Trent speaks of the baptismal or common priesthood. Uh, this is the catechism of the Council of Trent. It refers to the priesthood of all believers as the common priesthood or the internal priesthood. And it refers to the ministerial hierarchical priesthood. Trent calls it the hierarchical priesthood or the external priesthood. Now what does that mean? Well, distinguishing between the internal and external priesthood shows us that the priesthood of all believers is an essentially is essentially a spiritual priesthood offering your lives your prayers your sacrifices your sufferings your daily work or uh, that's essentially a spiritual priesthood whereas the ministerial priesthood is essentially a sacramental priesthood sometimes it's called the redemptive sacramental priesthood when a man is given the sacrament of holy orders, it's not just his soul that is configured to Christ. It's his body that is consecrated to God, too. Because it's through his body, his externals, to use Trent's description, because it's going to be through his hands that the bread and wine are going to be transubstantiated into the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Remember that every sacrament has an external, visible sign of an invisible reality. Um, when I was uh, in catechism class as a little boy, the Baltimore Catechism we were raised on, boy, could we use it again today, uh, the definition of a sacrament was, does anyone remember? The old one from the Baltimore Catechism? Come on, some of you are almost as old as me. <laughs> An outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. An outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Now, the Catechism expands on that. Catechism defines a sacrament as power flowing forth from the body of Christ that bring healing. And in the, in the catechism, the whole section of the pillar of the catechism deals with liturgy and sacraments. It has a fresco 
of the woman <coughs> hemorrhages, and she's touching the hem of Jesus. And power flows forth from him into her and heals her. So the catechism uses, likes that express definition of what a sacrament is. So with the sacrament of holy orders, it's the man himself who will be the external sign of an invisible reality. Who's the invisible reality? Christ himself. Yeah. So, so I hope you can see, begin to see how the terms that are used by the Council of Trent uh, shows us how the, sacrament, the ministerial sacramental priesthood differs in essence from the universal one. We're going to skip over entry 1548 because we read it last week. Um, it's basically just remember just saying that um, the priest by virtue of holy orders can act in persona Christi capitis, in the presence, in the person of Christ the head. Okay? A servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. Is that hinted to in that line? Is, that, is what hinted? The, the fact that these priests stand in persona Christi. So the, the, the people, the, the apostles that he's washing their feet are basically going to be, you know, no, they're going to be, he's going to be no greater than them now that he's washed their feet. Is, is that, you know, am I reading that right or am I? I've never heard that. Okay. Um, the, the term in persona Christi actually comes from St. Paul. Okay, okay we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. Right. Yeah. I've not heard that. It must appear in this line. Right there. Yeah. So, um, so he, the, he, the priest has the authority to act in the power and place of Christ himself. Okay? Christ is the source, remember, of all priesthood is what the catechism is saying. Now, let's continue on with 1549, 1550, and 1551. These are important. Uh, maybe we could just get through those, and then I'll give you a break. Well, you know what? Why don't you take your break now? Because this is going to take a little time to dive into, uh, and I don't want to rush through it. Well, we'll pick up with, with 1530 and 49. Just to go through this quickly, uh, because I hope to finish this tonight. I basically will summarize these, these quotes. So 1549 is basically saying, Christ the head is made present and visible in the midst of community, in the person of the bishop. And it has a beautiful quote there from St. Ignatius of Antioch, where he calls the bishop the living image of God the Father. Ever thought of your bishop like that? Yeah. You know, it's not. Especially if he's young, huh? He's not much of a looking like a father, huh? You know, Father, uh, Father, excuse me, I was going to say Father Barris. Uh, I studied in Rome with your bishop uh, when I knew him as Father Barris, when he was very young. Brilliant. He's, he's quite a brilliant man. Um, one of the most brilliant priests I've ever met. And highly educated. You, you know that already about him. He's very erudite. His homilies are erudite. His talks are erudite. That's just who he is. You know. 
Yes. He, he spent 10 minutes with me. He just started with talking. He was yeah, really, really impressive. Yes. Yes. I, I, I really liked him. When I knew when I, we were growing together, I, I just thought he was a, just a, a real gentleman, um, pleasant, kind, uh, you know, <clears throat> and a great athlete. Yeah. A scholar and an athlete. That's right. Anyway. Um, the second entry, 1550, is very interesting in that it tells, tells us all, something I think we already know very well, sadly, that the presence of Christ in the priest, the bishop, and the deacon uh, does not preserve them from human weaknesses or, it says, the spirit of domination, error, or sin. However, um, well, I'll, I'll touch on that later. I'll touch on that more later. And then uh, 1551 basically is telling us that the sacrament of holy orders bestows a sacred power which none other than, than that of Christ. So it's the exercise of that authority uh, must be measured against the model of Christ. So let me summarize these three more briefly. First of all, 1548, the priest can act in the person of Christ. As I said before, he becomes the external sign of the invisible sign, uh, reality of Christ, the eternal priest, made physically present. It's hard to picture sometimes. We see sometimes in our priests their humanity, their brokenness, you know, whatever their sins, and it's hard. We gotta always try to remember too uh, that there's a deeper reality here in every priest, you know, and bishop. Now, where does this idea of the Son of Christi come from? It comes from two Corinthians two nine to ten, and Paul is saying, "And to whom you have pardoned anything, I also." For what I have pardoned, if I have pardoned anything for your sakes, have I done it in the person of Christ, that we be not overreached by Satan, <coughs> for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's the Dewey Reims translation. And notice what Paul says, whoever I have forgiven, I have forgiven, pardoned, I have done it in the person of Christ. That's where the church gets its language, okay? He's basically saying, St. Paul, I stand in the place of Christ so that when I forgive you, it is Christ who forgives you. That's really the essence of the sacramental priesthood. The secondly, the second one, again, we know that the sacrament does not protect from sin. Um, there's a sacramental configuration of the priest to Christ, but it doesn't make them perfect. So even priests have to pre have to tend to their prayer lives, right? That's why we place such a strong emphasis on spiritual formation in the seminary. We want the men to develop a strong prayer life now that will serve them for the rest of their priesthood. It's not something you can put off and then say, oh, once I'm ordained, then I'll pray. No, no, no. No. You've got to develop and cultivate a deep interior life while you're in formation. And then that will continue, pray, hope, pray God. The more, the busier you are, the more apostolic work you are, gentlemen, future deacons, the more you need prayer. 
especially mental prayer. Mental prayer will help you accomplish things that you never thought you could accomplish. If you, if you devote 30 minutes a day to mental prayer. But the more, the busier you are, the more you need it. Okay? So the sacrament does not protect the priest from personal sin, obviously. Um, you know, when I was a child, Catholics used to put their priests on a pedestal. Uh, the priest could do no wrong. You wouldn't dare challenge him. You would certainly not talk back to him. Um, you always address him as father. And uh, I found it disconcerting when my first assignment when uh, I was a young priest and there were several parishioners who took it upon themselves to address me as Don. Wow. And I found that offensive because I hardly knew these people. And you know, they were, they were big libs who uh, had a problem with uh, you know, priestly authority. So it was a cross you had to bear. But I remember Monsignor Cusack in my diocese had a, a parishioner in his parish when he was pastor. She kept calling him, his name was Andrew Cusack, she kept calling him Andy. <laughs> so one day he pulled her aside and he said, uh, Madam, you may address me as Monsignor Cusack or Father Cusack, but don't ever call me Andy again. And that put a stop to it. You have no right to call me Andy. My best friends call me that. You're not my best friend. Pasta Gozi. <laughs> That's what, that was the end of that crap. <laughs> so, what the sacrament does guarantee, not going to guarantee you holy priests. They have to cultivate that holiness, like anyone else. Although they do receive, they, we, priests, receive extraordinary graces from God. But, we have to cooperate with grace just like any other man. What it does guarantee, what the Holy Spirit will guarantee through the sacrament of holy orders, is that when the priest acts in persona Christi, when he celebrates Mass, when he confects the Eucharist, when he absolves from sin, when he anoints, and so on and so forth, the sacraments will work, we say, according the Council of Trent coined this Latin phrase, ex opere operato, mm -hmm. which means from the work performed. So the sacraments confer grace by virtue of the work performed, because it is, it doesn't, they don't, they don't depend on the minister or the recipient. It's Christ Himself who confers grace through the sacraments. Now our interior dispositions are important. The more fruitful, the more our, the better our interior dispositions, the more fruitful will be our reception of the sacraments but they're not dependent on our dispositions. Grace is conferred by virtue of the work performed. So as long as the priest has the intention of doing what the church does and follows the proper matter and form of the sacrament, grace is conferred. Unless you're in the state of mortal sin and receive unworthily. But then you just go to confession, okay? And then the last one basically is just saying that, well, we already know this, it's a sacrament of service. The power of the priesthood and the episcopacy is ordered to service. It doesn't mean that Father can come in and lord it over everybody, 
and you know make changes that are going to drive everybody crazy. It's ordered to service. And I think a good rule of thumb for every new pastor, and I follow this myself. Remember, I told you I replaced a pastor who was there 34 years. So I went in, and I didn't change a thing for a year. Well, I changed one thing, the way they approached communion. It was total chaos. So I streamlined it. But that was all. You know, you wait. It's very important, very wise. You know, if you go in, be patient. You know, be patient. Let the people get to know you. And, and hopefully, you know, once they know you and once they believe that you love them and they know that you love them, then you can pretty much change anything. You have to win them over. You have to win their hearts. It's really important. Don't you think so? You don't want a pastor coming in and just saying, I'm in persona Christi, and so this is the law. They don't like it. You don't want that. My way of the heart. A pastor who does that doesn't understand what service is. You're there to serve the people, what's best for them. And any changes you make, you want to make because you believe it's for the good of the parish, not because it's your personal preference. All right? way that it's described is it's, it's a service to the priesthood of the faithful, right. not a service to the institutional church, where, you know, I think a lot of bishops who acted in the 1990s and 2000s, I don't think they were bad people. I just think they misunderstood where their service, you know, lay. It wasn't to... Church itself, or the, uh, the structure of the church, it was to the people. Right. And that formulation there is the same. Yes, yes. And again, you want to have even the bishop in a diocese. Um, in the Archdiocese of Hartford, for example, where I help out, about two years ago, maybe a little longer, the archbishop had a, have a committee and they had to consolidate over 100 parishes. In Waterbury, where I was helping, they had five, they can put five parishes together under the head of like one pastor. Mm -hmm. And I know that Bishop Calciano, I've been hearing that he may be doing that at Bridgeport. Why does, you know, that annoys the people, that upsets the people. But even then, the bishop is motivated by what's best for the local church. Because if you don't have the priests, uh, if, you, if, if a parish isn't viable, if it, you know they can't even afford to, to pay their bills, uh, this just starts to drag down everything. You know, mm -hmm. so sometimes bishops have to make you know very difficult decisions, as do pastors. You know, um, I had a friend who was a pastor in Miami who had to close his school. It was a vibrant school at one time with five or six hundred kids, and little by little it whittled down to like. You know, 300, 200, 100, and then below 100, and it was just not viable anymore. And he had to close it. He was the book. He was the bad guy, but he had to do it. He had to do it because it was draining the parish of the finances. And don't forget, gentlemen and ladies, the pastor is responsible for the to protect the temporal goods of the church. The bishop too, the temporal goods of the church. That's what canon law tells him. You know, so that could mean you know replacing boilers and roofs and 
all those things that cost money. You're wondering why the pastors come out looking for money. Well, you know, the roof's going to cave in or the, it's leaking and you got to do something about it. Charity demands that. Justice demands that. Okay. <clears throat> so, we have the three orders, the three degrees of holy orders. The word bishop means overseer in English. In Greek, episkopos. And epi, epi, it basically is over and above. Is that what epi means? Epi. And skopos means to scope things out. So you have someone over and above who's scoping things out. The overseer. That's what that means in the original Greek. The elders, priests, uh, as I said before, presbyteros, the elders. Diakonos, servants. Okay. Um, the word presbyter is used in the official text to designate the one who is <coughs> a priest and not a bishop. That's because the bishop is also a priest. Okay. He, he has the fullness of priesthood. Okay. So we usually, we're familiar in English with the term priest, but presbyter is often used as well. Um, okay. And priests are co-workers with the bishops. So in Lumen Gentium 28, uh, it says, although they do not possess the highest degree of priesthood, they are dependent on the bishops in the exercise of their power but they are united with him in sacerdotal dignity. With him and under his moderation, they proclaim the gospel, confect the Eucharist, forgive sins, anoint the sick, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so that's very interesting. Um, it is subordinate to the bishop's ministry, but they are co-workers with him. That's even in the ordination rite. And priests are configured to Christ the priest through ordination. Um, it says, through the sacrament of holy orders, priests, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, this is 1563, are signed with a special character and so are configured to Christ the priest in such a way that they are able to act in the person of Christ the head. Now, this is just an aside, I won't put this on the exam, but we've heard enough about sexual scandals involving priests. I wonder how many priests realize and understand, those who commit those sins, that they are so configured to Christ himself. Configured, remember, body and soul, not just soul, body and soul, that it would be a sacrilege for a priest to engage in a sexual act with another person. A sacrilege is the desecration of a sacred person, place, or thing. The worst form of sacrilege is against the Eucharist. But it would also be a sacrilege that, for example, even to lay violent hands on a cleric or to engage in sexual uh, acts with a cleric sacrilege because he's a sacred person okay. and both commit sacrilege both parties however willing so sorry I had to say that 
They possess a sacerdotal dignity. Um, by reason of their sacerdotal dignity, okay? Um, they are true priests of the New Testament. True priests of the New Covenant. So they're not just co-workers, but true priests of the New Covenant. And St. Alphonsus Liguori has a beautiful quote there. He says, uh, let's see, how about uh, uh, Daniel Corneille? Would you read that for us, please? I'm not reading very good, Father. Huh? Not reading very good. My English. Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, John Tremblay. The dignity of the priest is estimated from the exalted nature of his office. Priests are chosen by God to manage on earth all his concerns and interests. St. John Chrysostom, he who honors a priest honors Christ, and he who insults a priest insults Christ. Okay, so we call priests father precisely because they are the fathers of our spiritual lives. Okay? And that we have a basis for that in 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? And then we have St. Stephen calling upon <coughs> brethren and fathers, hear me. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's what Jesus, uh, when the Protestants say you should never call anyone on earth father, though you can call a priest father, Jesus forbids that. Uh, that's a lot of humbug. Okay, um, unless the Holy Spirit is confused. Um, this cannot be a prohibition, um, or the apostles wouldn't have used the, the father, the address of father. What Jesus was prohibiting is the love of honorific titles, okay, and exalting yourself out of pride. That's what he's talking about. So, the mission of the priests next is to preach the gospel everywhere and to offer the holy sacrifice to the mass. Those are the two sacred powers, uh, not, well, not so much to preach, but the two sacred powers are primarily the celebration of the Eucharist, to confect the Eucharist, and also to absolve sins in the name of Christ. And then also preaching. Okay? Their whole life, as I said, we saw in the biblical theology, their whole life is at the service of the altar. But not just the altar. That's the supreme place for the priest. But, you know, that doesn't mean that your life is completely dominated by liturgy. Some of the younger guys have to get that through their heads. You know, uh, Dr. Christine um, was telling me how she taught a course to the seminarians, and she caught one of them uh, um, on his computer looking at vestments. <laughs> all right, all right, you're interested in vestments, you want to wear beautiful vestments, you want to look nice, a little liturgy, all right, fine. But that's not the essence, you know, that's not the essence, right? That's part of the essence, but it's not the complete essence. You've got to be able to, you know, your parishioners are in the hospital, uh, Father, go visit them. When someone's dying, drop everything and go. You know, the law of charity is the law of charity. Um, I'm, not, I'm not against nice vestments, trust me. 
but you shouldn't be looking at investment, uh, you know, armies, uh, whatever it is, with the, with the, the Holy Root Guild, uh, you know, while you're, while you're like, you know, trying to, the teacher's trying to teach you something, right? Okay. And we were also told that they are totally dependent on the bishop, all right, to the, for their exercise of their power, priests, I mean. And yet, he considers them his co-workers, his sons, his brothers, and his friends, that they, in return, owe him love and obedience. And there's a priestly fraternity that should exist. A sacramental bond is created through ordination as well. Let's now talk some about deacons. All three and the word, as I said before, diakonos in Greek, means servants. All of these three orders are a sacramental participation in the ministerial priesthood of Christ. However, um, the term priest in Latin, such, uh, 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 sacerdos, is that the accent? Sacerdos or sacerdos? sacerdotes, is restricted to bishops and presbyters. Now, let's look at these because we haven't touched on them before. The future deacons. Who's, who's, a future, who's going to be a future deacon here? All right. One of the future deacons. I don't care who. Read 1554 for us. Fifteen sixty-four. The divinely instituted ecclesiastical ministry is exercised in different degrees by those who even from ancient times have been called bishops, priests, and deacons. Catholic doctrine expressed in the liturgy, in the magisterium, and the constant practice of the church recognizes that there are two degrees of ministerial participation in the priesthood of Christ. The episcopacy, episcopacy and the Presbyterian. The diaconate is intended to help and serve them. For this reason, the term sacerdote in current usage denotes bishops and priests, but not deacons. Yet Catholic doctrine teaches that the degrees of priestly participation, the episcopate and presbyterian, and the degree of service, the diaconate, are all three conferred by a sacramental act called ordination, that is, by the sacrament of holy orders. Let everyone revere the deacons as Jesus Christ, the bishop as the image of the Father, and the presbyters as the Senate of God, and the assembly of the apostles. For without them, one cannot speak of the church. So they're quoting again from St. Ignatius of Antioch, from about 110 AD, uh, to uphold the dignity of the diaconate. Okay? Uh, this is important because I think sometimes Catholic lay people can view permanent deacons as members of the laity mm -hmm. uh, because they're married men and they have secular jobs, but they are ordained clerics. So when you enter the diaconate, you become a cleric. You're no longer a member of the laity, okay? And they participate in this ministerial priesthood, but in different ways, okay? Uh, and that goes back to ancient times, and that's indicated by the quote from St. Ignatius. Uh, so we see, as we did in the closing quote from last week's class, that long quote I gave you from St. Ignatius, 
where you see these three offices, these three orders, are established and already respected uh, by as early as the second century. Okay? Now, the biblical basis for these three degrees are orders. Titus and Timothy, two, 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 1, are particularly important. These are Paul's letters to priests, and Paul is writing to Titus and Timothy, who are young bishops. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of being profligate or insubordinate. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. He must hold firm to the sure word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. So we see here the two key terms used for bishop and priest, episcopos, orbisi, and presbyteroi, elders. And Paul kind of slides between these two without really making a distinction between them. But we know that there is a distinction because he's addressing Titus, who is a bishop, right? And we know that he, Titus is a bishop because he's telling Titus to, quote, appoint elders, presbyteroi, in every town. And only a bishop has the sacred power to ordain a presbyter. Okay, so we know that. But in his earlier letters, Paul speaks of bishops and, and presbyters almost as if uh, they're the same. But he does that because every bishop is also a presbyter, and also a deacon for that matter. Okay? Every presbyter is also a deacon. Okay? A bishop doesn't lose the order of priest, uh, and deacon when he becomes a bishop, and a priest doesn't lose the order of deacon when he becomes a priest. Okay, so we retain that. In both cases, what's happening is they're receiving a greater participation in the one ministerial priesthood of Christ. Okay, they bear within themselves the two sacred orders, or three in the case of the bishop. Okay? Then the mission of the bishop and priest is to teach sound doctrine. Not this liberal, liberal baloney. All right, I don't, I don't, you know, I have no tolerance for that. You, know? you don't, you don't preach your own opinions from the pulpit. If anything, your mind should be formed in the mind of Christ and the mind of the church, and preach what the church teaches, and you're on solid ground. Right? You don't want to this theologian's opinion, that theologian's opinion. You know, I don't care about that. What the church teaches is what the church teaches. That is the truth, and you can stand on the truth, and you stand on solid, solid ground when you stand on the truth. Remember that, future deacons. Right? When you're ordained and preaching the, the, the word, the Lord's going to hold you and, uh, and me accountable for what we teach the people. <clears throat> we want to teach them sound doctrine, the truth, right? because that's what saves. Right? Right? So, and can to confute those who contradict it. That's called apologetics. Defending the faith. Giving 
reasons for the hope that is in you, to use the first letter of Peter. And you don't do this in an angry way. You know, people are confused, people don't know, so a lot of people are just ignorant, right? They adopt the mentality of the world, things filter in, they, they think it's right and it isn't, you know. So we want to give reasons for what we believe, you know? That's why you're studying theology. But that's not their primary responsibility uh, unless they're commissioned by their people uh, their bishops, uh, because of their theological education, um, the primary, the ministry of teaching uh, falls primarily to the bishop and secondarily to priests as much. The, the diaconate uh, the, doesn't mean that deacons can't teach, certainly, but that's not your primary mission. Your primary mission is, is service, um, unless I say you've been commissioned by your bishop, right? So let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 1, 7. Uh, let's see. Dominic, please do the reading for us. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. This is good, and it is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, testimony to which was born at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a preacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The saying is sure, anyone aspires to the office of bishop who desires a noble task. Okay, so what uh, uh, this letter is saying, St. Paul is calling upon Timothy first to intercede on behalf of others. Then he asserts that there is only one mediator between God and man, Christ. Protestants will point to this text, by the way, this one verse too in this text to say that uh, since Christ is the one mediator, there's no need for a ministerial priesthood. But look at the context, right? Paul then says that there are that's why he was appointed. He's appointed to preach and intercede and be an apostle, which means to be to act as a mediator. The power to pray and to offer the Eucharist is not in competition with Christ as mediator, right? But flows out of his power as mediator. Right? That's the Catholic understanding. And then the words, very interesting, to lift holy hands. He's speaking here now in a liturgical context. This is the act of elevation and the offering of sacrifice. It's a priestly image, right? What does the priest do when he's at mass? When he's, 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 holy, he's lifting holy hands, right, to God. And in the Greek and Hebrew Old Testament, the terminology for the rite of ordination is described as handing a man, handing a man, to hand him. 
because the consecration of his hands and the laying on of hands is an essential rite of the priesthood. So when Paul speaks about the lifting of holy hands, he's describing the hands of the priest and the elevation of the blessed sacrament. Okay? And even the priests of the Old Testament, by the way, would lift their hands what was called a wave offering. It was an elevation offering. Okay? They would take uh, the offering of bread and wine and they would elevate it before God. Okay, okay let's go to the next, uh, the next text. Um, someone here like to read? James, please. 1 Timothy 3. Now a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified, hospitable, and apt teacher. No drunkard, nonviolent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and no lover of money. He must manage his own household thoughts, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit <laughs> with the condemnation of the devil. He must be well clothed by outsiders, or he may fall into reproach and snare of the devil. So here Paul is detailing not only the qualities of a bishop, but the spiritual dangers of being a bishop. Let me tell you, that's not, that's not a, a job I'd want, especially in today's world. Today's world, you need the, the courage of a martyr to be a bishop, okay? Each bishop will give an account to God for his entire diocese, all right? I just have to give it up uh, for you and uh, seminarians right now, and probably and from my parishioners when I was a pastor. It's a very weighty office. We should pray for our bishops, right? Uh, and what can be said about bishops could also be said about priests. Now, um, Paul goes into deacons. So who's studying for the diaconate? Go ahead, please. Deacons, likewise, must be serious, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. The women likewise must be serious, no slanderous but temperament, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife and let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. All right, so you future deacons must be serious and not double-tongued. Mm -hmm. Not addicted to much wine or vodka or gin or scotch or whatever your, whatever your choice of drink is. All right, and it says deacons be, may, let them be the husband of one wife. You know, before, just as, just as an aside, um, in the new code of canon, well, it's not the new code anymore. It came out in 1983. When the code of canon law from 1917 was revised and came out in 1983, the original draft said that deacons, um, married deacons, when their wives died, they could remarry. 
Well, His Holiness, Saint, Pope Saint John Paul II, went through the draft of the code with a pen in hand, and as the supreme legislature of the church, he went through and he was changing this and changing that and deleting this. And when he came upon that passage, he said, he's cut it out. So the wife, the husband of one wife, and if the wife dies, they cannot remarry. So, which is, which is kind of nice because a lot of men who, who, whose wife, I know quite a few deacons whose wives passed away, and when they passed away, after a fashion, they went on and became priests. You know? Uh, they felt called to be priests, and they just went back to seminary for a couple of years for more training, and then now they're priests. We have several in my diocese. I'm probably all have them, you know? But uh, that probably wouldn't have been the case if they had a chance to marry again, you know? A line there that... <laughs> you can't remember. You put us together and sin. One could argue that that's referring to women, women deacons. No. No? You cannot. No. There was no such thing as women deacons in the church. And I'm telling you, all right? All right. <laughs> he, uh, our, our friend Vinny, uh, the attorney, I might add, <laughs> is, is trying to nitpick about how when it said um, uh, women should be likewise serious no slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things, that that could be implied as deaconesses. But there were, the deaconess, and the, didn't I talk about this last week? Oh. Deaconess, deaconess in the early church was not an ordained ministry. They were assistants at baptisms and catechumens uh, who were being um, received into the church because they would very frequently uh, disrobe uh, the women and the men, and they assisted to keep modesty they assisted the women who were being baptized in immersion, okay? But they weren't ordained, all right? They weren't ordained. It's entirely, entirely different order. We're talking about the order, the sacred order of diaconate and deaconesses are two different things. Kabish? No, no, no. I, I'm glad you did because now I'm giving you a chance to expound a little on it, all right? So deacons are to be prudent, exercise self-control, orthodox, and um, they are ordained, deacons are ordained like bishops and priests by the laying on of hands. But it says, not unto the priesthood, but unto the ministry. And again, the use of the word ministry, uh, sometimes we use that word very loosely in the church today. Uh, to, 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 to refer to all the activities of the church. Um, the Vatican does not want us to use that term when referring to uh, um, service. The Holy See doesn't want us to use that term because ministry per se refers to the ordained ministry and to the deacons in particular. That's why it says ordained unto ministry, right? Some deacons feel they don't have a proper place in the church, either because they feel eclipsed by the priesthood or because of all these lay ministries, right? But their role is ministry, okay, service. And now we go to the next, basically this is what the next um, entry from 1569 is going to say. Uh, go ahead, Will. A lower level of the hierarchy are to be found deacons 
to receive signifying the deacon's special attachment to the bishop in the tasks of his diaconia. Okay, diaconia. Okay. So he's con the deacon is conferred to Christ also, but to Christ the servant, not to Christ the priest. There's an essential difference there between the sacred order of deacon and priest. Okay? They're tasked to assist the bishop and priest. So let's look at the next one, 1570. Again, one of the deacons uh, to be uh, at Yonkers. Go ahead, Deacon George. Go ahead. Deacons share in Christ's mission and grace in a special way. The sacrament of holy orders marks them with an imprint which cannot be removed or which configures them to Christ, who made himself the deacon or the servant of all. Among other tasks, it is the task of the deacon to assist the bishop and the priest in the celebration of the divine mysteries, above all the Eucharist, in the distribution of communion, in assisting at the blessing, at, and blessing marriages, in the proclamation of the gospel, and preaching, in presiding over funerals, and in dedicating themselves to the various ministries of charity. Okay, so the basic uh, ministry of the deacon is to distribute Holy Communion. The deacon is an ordinary minister of the Eucharist, just like the priest and the bishop. He is not an extraordinary minister or, or mandated, uh, in, uh, installed by the pastor, okay, among the laity, but as a cleric, he is an or ordinary minister of the Eucharist. He assists at blessing marriages, performing marriages. Um, you can have a wedding mass where the priest presides over the Eucharist and the deacon actually can do the uh, ceremony. And especially if he, if he knows the family or is close to the bride and groom, the deacon can do that. Deacon can also preach uh, at the funeral, the weddings, okay? They preside over funeral services um, and other ministries of charity, okay? Now the right of ordination of deacons, priests, and bishops make it very clear that the bishop is the ordinary minister of holy orders. Okay, only a bishop, usually the ordinary, but he can delegate an auxiliary bishop uh, to do this, all right? Uh, for priesthood though, almost always, unless the ordinary is disabled or ill or has to be away for an important reason, the ordinary of the diocese is the, is the bishop who normally ordains men to the priesthood and to the diaconate. Unless uh, in a large see like New York, or Boston, Philly, places like that, um, they will, the ordinary can delegate one of his auxiliary bishops to ordain to the diaconate, okay? But almost never to the priesthood. You, would, you should get an auxiliary bishop ordaining to the priesthood. But for, for the diaconate, he might, might do that. Um, and as a bishop, he's perfectly qualified because he is a bishop. He is an ordinary minister of holy orders. Even the auxiliary bishops are ordinary ministers of holy orders. Okay? So he's still, an auxiliary bishop is still a uh, successor to the apostles. Absolutely. Sure, he's ordained fully to the episcopacy. Yeah. And, and, and my friend here, 
uh, asked me a question about why they assign them to titular dioceses. Well, that's because every bishop is actually supposed to be the bishop of some place, and auxiliary bishops are not, right? They're assistants to the ordinary. So they give them uh, basically a defunct diocese somewhere in the world to make head up, you know? Yeah, really. Oh, yeah. I remember when my bishop, uh, Caggiano, was installed in the Diocese of Bridgeport, he had come from Brooklyn as an auxiliary bishop, and he said, he said to Bishop DiMarzio, who was there, he says, once he was installed, he says, Bishop DiMarzio, you're no longer my boss. <laughs> so, yeah, so the ordinary is the boss. I mean, he can delegate. <laughs> now, the essential rite consists of three major things. The laying on of hands by the bishop and the outpouring, the prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the prayer of consecration, right? And the symbols given to the ordinandi. Now, um, and these all vary. Laying on of hands by the bishop, uh, for the book, for the bishop, the ordination of a bishop, there would be, um, the symbols would be the book of the gospels, the ring, the mitre, and the crozier. All right? So I've never been, frankly, I've never seen, I've never been to the ordination of the bishop yet. I'm hoping one of my friends at the seminary who are younger I'll live long enough to see one. It's very beautiful, I understand. And uh, they place the book of the Gospels over the man's head. They anoint his head with chrism, uh, the oil that flows down the beard of Aaron, right? Aaron the high priest. The bishop is the new, this man is becoming a high priest as bishop, right? And they give him the book of the Gospels, the ring on his finger, the mitre, the crozier, and so forth. For a priest, it's the paten and the chalice into the ordination of the priest, you'll see that. He kneels before the, the newly ordained, uh, kneel before the bishop, and he hands them the, the, the paten and the chalice, receive from the people of God the gifts to be offered to him. Uh, know what you are doing, imitate the mystery you saw, imitate, the, model your life on the mystery of the Lord's cross, the bishop will say to him. And for the deacon, the symbol is the book of the gospels, because you're going to be ministers of the word at the service of the gospel. And it is Christ who ordains through the validly ordaining bishop. Okay? Remember, the bishop is acting in persona Christi. So it is Jesus Christ, our Lord himself, who has chosen you to be a deacon, a priest, or a bishop. And it is Jesus Christ who ordains you through the valid or through the, through the bishop. Okay? Jesus chose the apostles. Share, gave them a share in his mission and authority, and so on, and he continues to do that through the ministry of, or um, through the ordination, right, okay? And validly ordained bishops, by the way, means those who are in the line of apostolic succession, uh, who can validly confer all three orders. The last thing I want to talk about before we part ways, is priesthood and the ordination of women. So, 
Catechism entry 1577 deals with that. Okay? I hope it won't be Okay, Joan's going to read that. Only a baptized man validly receives sacred ordination. The Lord Jesus chose men to form the College of the Twelve Apostles, and the Apostles did the same when they chose collaborators to succeed them in their ministry. The College of Bishops, with whom the priests are united in the priesthood, makes the College of the Twelve an ever-present and ever-active reality until Christ's return. The church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. For this reason, the ordination of women is not possible. Okay, so let's break that down. Only a man, a baptized man, probably receives sacred ordination. And then it provides the two reasons. One, Jesus chose only men. And two, the apostles chose only men, following the example of Jesus. It also says, uh, next, that the College of Bishops and Priests uh, unite them, um, making them, of the, the College of, make, makes them united, the two, the, the College of Bishops and the Presbyterate united, makes them the College of the Twelve, an ever-present and ever-active reality. This is very, very important. The Bishops and Priests today don't replace the Apostles. They participate in the Apostolic College. The apostles are still in heaven functioning. And we have a quote there from Revelation 21 and a shorter one from Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, meaning life of heaven, the son, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, they didn't stop sitting on their thrones. They still sit, uh, they are still the apostolic college, even in heaven. And they exercise, so to speak, that in the, they exercise that college in the heavenly Jerusalem. What the earthly priesthood does is to participate in that heavenly reality. And it makes it present on earth as an ever-present and ever-active reality, right? Both through time, spiritually, and mystically. So the church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. Remember, some, some will say, well, it was culturally conditioned, women didn't have a position in those days. Well, that, that part, it's true, women didn't have much standing back then. But remember, uh, Jesus is God the Son made man, right? He's not, he was never bound by cultural mores. In fact, he used to break them left and right, which is one reason why the Pharisees hated him so much. If he wanted women ordained to the priesthood, he would have included women at the Last Supper. And certainly as God, as his omniscience, as God, knowing all things, past, present, and future, he would know that in, you know, 2,000 years later, there'd be a big squabble about this, especially in the United States. And, uh, you know, he could have dealt with it then. He knew this, and still he chose only men. Not even his mother was present at the Last Supper. Who was more worthy of the priesthood 
than the Virgin Mary. But that wasn't her vocation. Okay? So that explains why the ordination of women is not possible. So in power, this paragraph, the catechism is, is saying that only baptized men can validly receive holy orders, and it tells us why. The primary reason is that we, it is in the will of Jesus Christ. It reflects the very will of God. Okay? And the apostles followed that will of Jesus. They recognized that, and so they chose only men, and the church recognized herself to be bound by that choice of the Lord to restrict the priesthood to men. Now, there are other theological arguments about why women can't be priests. We already talked a little about last week about uh, the spousal character of the priest vis-a-vis -vis the church. Um, um, also, because the priest is a spiritual father, right? Um, the last time I checked, only men can be fathers, uh, even in today's screwy world. Um, and only women can be mothers, right? I mean, I can't change my nature. Right? Priesthood is spiritual fatherhood, then it can only be conferred on men. But again, that's secondary. The church's principal argument is found in the will of Jesus Christ. And he told his apostles in Luke 10, he who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Um, there were priestesses in the ancient world, uh, but not in Judaism, who recognized God as Father, and that the priest is the image of God. So her spiritual father is at the essence of sacrifice, so only men could be priests in the Old Covenant, and only men could be priests in the New Covenant. Now, there are spiritual mothers. In fact, I wrote my doctoral dissertation and published a book um, in December of 1917, I think, 18, uh, called The Spiritual Motherhood, Staritsa. It was called The Spiritual Motherhood of Catherine Doherty. She founded the Madonna House Apostles. And uh, her, her vocation was to be a spiritual mother. And I developed the whole uh, notion of spiritual motherhood in that book and how she exercised it. Okay? A spiritual mother can guide and form her spiritual children through her teaching, her example, her wisdom. Um, but a spiritual fatherhood implies priesthood because it's rooted in the priesthood of the Old Covenant uh, and following the will of Jesus. I gave you a handout also that contains um, the document called Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, uh, just a snippet. Um, that entire document lays out a fuller theological explanation why women cannot be priests. And some people think that that teaching can and may change in the future, or at least they did when it first came out. Um, and in fact, when it came out, many theologians challenged it. And they said, well, it's just a matter of discipline rather than doctrine. And there was a discussion about that even before the catechism came out. So Pope St. John Paul II wrote this document in 1994. Uh, it's, it's a short three-page letter. And he reaffirmed the church's teaching, and he rejected the opinion of those theologians who called it a matter of discipline. 
He said it is a universal teaching of the church. And so after he did that, in 1994, theologians, um, some who were just blatantly dissenters or disobedient, and others who just generally were trying to understand, they asked if the Pope's statement was infallible. Okay? Um, so others just ignored it. So the next year, in 1995, the, sacred con the Congregation for the Sacred Doctrine of the Faith, who was led by, guess who? Um, Ratzinger. That's right, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI. And he said the Declaration is infallible doctrine uh, it's part because it's part of the deposit of faith. It was set forth infallibly by the ordinary magisterium, and that means that it requires the definitive assent of all the faithful, and it is irrevocable, which means that it can never be changed. Pope Francis can't change it. No future pope can change it. It's infallible because it's part of the deposit of faith. All right, so you have the document in front of you. We don't need to read it in class. It's very clear. Uh, it's as clear as can be. And we're going to talk more. I don't want to get, uh, I don't want to get wrapped up in um, the various levels of magisterial teaching and the assent that's required by the faithful for that, because we're going to have a whole lesson on the magist teaching office of the church. Okay. The catechism then goes on to say that no one has the right to holy orders. And there it's quoting Hebrews 5.4, right? And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God just as Aaron was. So no one has a right to receive the sacrament of holy orders. It says, indeed, no one claims this office for himself. He is called to it by God. And anyone who thinks he recognizes the signs of God's call to the ordained ministry must humbly submit his desire to the authority of the church, who has the responsibility and the right to call someone to receive orders. Like every grace, this sacrament can be received only as an unmerited gift. So, at the seminary, um, I'm going to wrap this up very quickly. At the seminary, uh, every Tuesday, the, fact, the, the external faculty meets. I'm not part of the external faculty because I am a spiritual, canonical spiritual director along with two other priests on the faculty. <clears throat> so spiritual directors don't have a vote. Everything we uh, do, we all have our spiritual sons, and that's all internal form. Unless they tell us something dire, then we're not bound by the internal form. But so, just to keep our objectivity, when I, I attend those meetings because I want to, especially when my men are being discussed. I want to hear what the rest of the faculty is saying about them, because it might help me in my direction with them. And it's very interesting, I'll tell you, it's so interesting to see how the Holy Spirit works in these meetings. Uh, here you have the external faculty who number about, I guess, nine, ten, like, I guess about nine or ten. And the advisor of the man gives a full report based on his meetings with him. And then each faculty member goes around the room at this long table, and they share their view of the man. His strengths, his weaknesses, where they think he 
means to grow, uh, whether they think he's suitable, a suitable candidate or not, whether, whatever. And uh, then we go through them by class by class. So we're just finishing up third theology now, tomorrow, and then we're going to start with second theology. And at the end of uh, the discussion, they vote on whether to advance the man to, like right now we're finishing third theology, so they'll vote to advance the man to fourth theology. So it's a process that goes on. The first year men will be voted on to advance to second year. The second year to third, the third to fourth, and then finally the fourth men, there'll be a vote whether to advance them to diaconate ordination. And then after that, there'll be another vote on whether to advance them from diaconate to the priesthood ordination. And uh, it's a very weighty responsibility. I'm, I'm go out, I don't have to vote. Because it's a weighty responsibility. And, and then the third the, the <coughs> will vote on whether advance with no reservations, advance with reservations, and then if they adapt, if it's reservations, they have to tell every, they have to say why. Why reservations? What are your reservations? Or to delay. We think this man needs a pastoral year. He's too young. He's immature. Uh, he's got issues. We, we, can't, we can't advance him. Let's, let's send him to a parish. Or number four, to, re, to resign, to ask him to resign from the program, or five, to dismiss him from the program. So those are the five categories, see? And, um, and if, if they vote for anything other than just to advance without reservations, those priests on the faculty have to give their reasons why, why reservation, why delay, why resignation, why do you vote to dismiss? And then they'll take a second vote once those priests have explained themselves. And he may have convinced the others to change their vote. Right? Right? Because we're aware that the Holy Spirit is at work here in discerning the church, discerning whether this man has a vocation and if he's ready to advance. Right? And the two principles are always the same, for the good of the church and for the good of the man. You don't want to advance a man to ordination if he isn't suitable because it'll mess up his life and he'll in turn mess up the lives of lots of other people. So it's the good of the church and the good of the man. Okay? So this is what goes on. And, but ultimately, it's the bishop's decision. So even if they voted unanimously to delay or even to dismiss, the bishop could overrule that. He's the ultimate discerner of the men in his own diocese. He could take the vote and accept it, or he could say, no, I don't want that. That's up to him, and we have to accept that. So that's the process. It's very interesting, you know. All right, quick, 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 and then I'll let you go. The effects of holy orders. I'm tired of talking. <laughs> Uh, Paul, please, and then Colleen. Yes. This sacrament configures the recipient to Christ by spe a special grace of the Holy Spirit, so that he may serve as Christ's instrument for his church. By ordination, one is enabled to act as a representative of Christ, head of the church, 
in his triple office of priest, prophet, and king. Okay. As in the case of baptism and confirmation, this share in Christ's office is granted once for all. The sacrament of holy orders, like the other two, confers an indelible spiritual character and cannot be repeated or conferred temporarily. Okay, so an indelible uh, spiritual character is a seal is stamped upon the soul of the priest. It's not a new seal. Uh, we think it's more of a, 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 a deepening of the baptismal character because you've already been sealed at baptism with this indelible character. So in heaven, you'll be known as a baptized Christian. In hell, you'll be known too. Okay. Uh, a man who is a deacon uh, and a priest and a bishop will have this indelible character conferred on him. And the character enables him, empowers him to act, in the case of a bishop and a priest, as head of the church, as priest, prophet, and king. Okay? Uh, but that character is stamped and sealed for all eternity. So that after death, uh, you will be a deacon in heaven or hell. You will be a priest, bishop in heaven or hell. You don't want to go to another place, trust me. Okay? You'll be recognized by the saints and angels as a deacon, a priest, or a bishop. Okay? And you will be honored as such in the kingdom okay? for all eternity. Okay? Yes? When you're ordained in various levels, let's see here, yes, please. Do you feel the grace at that moment of ordination or that time of ordination? Do you feel it? You know, um, grace is not something you feel, all right? But sometimes God will give you consolations. Remember we talked in spiritual theology about the consolations of prayer. At a moment like that, I experienced it myself. At the moment the bishop laid hands on my head at my priesthood ordination, I just felt this overwhelming, I can't, it's ineffable, I couldn't even put it in words. It's a... Something, something happened. You know, something was happening that was ontological at the level of my being that was so profound that it filled me with a deep joy and a deep peace, a consolation that bubbled up. You know, um, I guess that. I guess that's yeah. Now whether the others did, I don't know. That's a lot of times people don't talk about that. You know, how do you tell someone? Uh, you know, what happened to you at the moment you were ordained? You might tell your spiritual director, but it's a very personal thing, you know. All right, uh, any questions? All right, so now next week is the midterm, and you'll have the whole period for it. If you finish early, fine. Just uh, uh, I'll be I'll be at Yonkers, and here you just hand it in to me, and, uh, and then it'll get transported over to me. Correct them as soon as I can. So we'll be meeting again. On the 16th, that'll be our, our last meeting before the break. Oh gosh, I, yeah. That's yeah. And then we have only have we're off on the 17th and the 19th. 
and then they get a break for uh, over a week. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us give thanks and praise to Almighty God and to our Lord Jesus Christ for the great gift of holy orders in the church. We want to intercede uh, uh, for all of God's people, for the bishop of our respective dioceses, uh, for the priests that, uh, in our parishes, our pastors, the deacons who serve us so well in our parishes. Um, may, they, may they always be blessed by the Lord and be faithful, uh, fruitful servants of God, true men of God, uh, configured to Christ, who act in his person where appropriate for the good of souls, the salvation of souls, and the glory of God. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Lord be with you. And with with your spirit. God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Mm -hmm.